Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and I wanted to wish you all a Happy New Year with a surprise episode. Today, I'm wrapping up our mini-series, A Tour de France, and then I have an important announcement to make about the show's plans for 2018. But first, let's pick up where we left off with a group of weary athletes entering the last leg of their epic journey. Over the past two weeks, the athletes had cycled more than 1,000 miles, and their minds were probably too occupied with ideas of food and drink and sleep to take notice of their unusual surroundings as they entered one of the strangest corners of France, Brittany. On their way to the final checkpoint of the first Tour de France, the cyclists entered a realm of wilderness, of strange customs, of myth and legend, of sublime inspiration and terrible physical suffering, a land where artists sought inspiration and refuge, and where slaves were chained together and sent across the sea. While the cyclists headed towards Nantes, the largest port in colonial France, headquarters of the French slave trade and a major industrial city by 1903, we're going to turn our sights away from the big city. Because the heart of Brittany is wild, and her stories take place far from the beaten path. In the 5th and 6th centuries, a group of travelers crossed the English Channel, settling on the coast of France with foreign customs, foreign dress, and a foreign language. As their home was crowded out by Anglo-Saxons, more and more of these refugees made their way to French shores. Their community grew and grew until this wild, isolated region was named after their home country, Brittany. Here on the harsh coastline, far from Paris or any other authority, the Celtic traditions and tongue of the Breton settlers could flourish away from the eyes of the authorities. Left to their own devices, the Bretons spent their days on the sea, and at night they retreated back to their ancient home, the woods. Along the great scale of geologic time, the woods of Brittany were rather new. The region's first residents were neither French nor British nor really quite human. Neanderthals fleeing the glaciers of the Ice Age explored this relatively balmy piece of earth, and evidence of their attempts to stay warm remain to this day. In the tiny village of Pluenec, populated today by not much more than seagulls, a group of Neanderthals once built a hearth to protect their fire and keep warm through the night. The hearth is still visible 450,000 years later, the oldest in the world. Eventually, the Neanderthals were bushelled out by their hipper cousins, the Homo sapiens, who understood the value of being fashionably late, because by the time they arrived in Brittany, around 35,000 years ago, the glaciers of the Ice Age were retreating at last, the air was warming, and the new climate brought new neighbors. Trees. 
By the time the travelers made their way from Britain into France, the forests were legendary in every sense of the word. By the Middle Ages, Brittany was a single, immense forest, and deep within her trees, according to legend, was the palace of King Arthur and the tomb of none other than Merlin himself. As Victor Hugo, one of the greatest explorers of interior France, would later write, the history of the forests of Brittany would form a history by itself. History has its truth, so has legend. Legendary truth is of a different nature from historical truth, but Brittany can only be fully explained by supplanting history with legend. Legends of a new kind arose during the French Revolution when the forests of Brittany shielded a new kind of knight. Writing of the struggles faced by the national armies attempting to tame the region during the French Revolution, we hear from Victor Hugo again. It is difficult to picture those Breton forests as they really were. They were towns. Nothing could be more secret, silent, and savage than those inextricable entanglements of thorns and branches. In those vast thickets, stillness and quietness made their lair. No desert ever appeared more deathlike and sepulchral. Yet if those trees could have been felled at a single blow, as if by a flash of lightning, there would have stood revealed in those shades a swarming mass of men. Some curious statistics make it possible to comprehend the powerful organization of the great peasant revolt of the French Revolution. In ile Villain and the forest of Le Peutre, there was no sign of human life, and 6,000 men were there. In Morbihan, in the forest of Molac, not a soul could be seen, and there were 8,000 men. Those two forests are not among the largest in Brittany. The forests of Brittany could swallow entire peasant armies, and a traveler could pass through her fields without ever knowing the entire cities hidden within the surrounding landscape. As Hugo wrote, in the caves of Egypt there were dead men, in the caves of Brittany, there were living beings. The larvae of legend and the monsters of history all passed over this black country. In this secluded, secret environment, local traditions flourished, which would prove mysterious and irresistible to the wider world when they were exposed. In the 19th century, Brittany was no longer a secret garden. Railroads, and a resentful Napoleon, sent the guerrillas out of the forest and into the factories. Even while the region's protective isolation faded away, however, Brittany's traditional customs experienced a sort of revival. Linguists traced the spread of the Breton language, which was still the dominant native tongue for most adults, well into the 20th century. Breton foods, like dry cider and savory crepes, were all the rage. Highfalutin city folk made their way out to gawk at the rustic peasants, who were willing enough to pose in their traditional hats if it meant keeping poverty away for another day. And above all, it was the artists who revealed the secrets of Brittany, riding the new rail lines with their easels and pallets, tramping the rest of the journey on foot. 
Paul Gauguin was to the village of Pontevin what Monet had been to the suburban charms of Giverny. Fifty years' worth of peasants made the pilgrimage to Pontevin to paint the rustic peasants in their hats, the boats, the sailors in their Breton stripes, the glasses of cider, and the glimmering sea. This strange blend of tourism and tradition greeted the cyclists of 1903, and they entered a Brittany on the cusp of great and irrevocable change. More so than any other corner of the country, here was the last wilderness of France, the last gasp of traditional culture, the final frontier of l'ancien régime. After passing through the last traces of the legendary woods, passing through the eerily quiet landscape which offered no evidence of human inhabitants, the athletes made their way into Nantes. Nantes represented the victory of so-called civilization over backwardness, having made her money on that most civilized of industries, quote-unquote, the slave trade. One-third of France's Atlantic slave trade passed through Nantes, and the city was rich, industrialized, and thoroughly French. This was modern France. This was the future of Brittany. And the cyclists who stopped for a glass of cider may never have realized what kind of world still persisted, still held on tenuously and delicately just outside the city limits. After their meal and a good night's sleep, the cyclists rose the next morning and they climbed onto their bicycles one more time. After a thousand miles through the heart of a changing world, the cyclists turned their bikes northeast and they began the journey home. In the village of Pleuron, on the northern coast of Brittany, the locals are currently busy drying off. Every New Year's Eve, the town climbs down to the beach, strips off their clothing, and plunges into the freezing sea. It's a way to leave behind the past, to wash everything away, and return home ready to look forward into the new year and into the future. Earlier this morning, nearly a third of the town took the plunge, and then they went home to get warm. In their modern village, forward-thinking, with restaurants and cafes and gas stations and paved roads, the residents of Pleuron went home into their modern apartments and homes, and they warmed themselves up. After 450,000 years of changing customs, languages, nations, and even climates, the coast of France was filled once again with those small tribes of humans, pink and shivering, surrounded by a vast and unknowable future, trying to stay warm. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. This episode marks the end of our series, A Tour de France, and the beginning of a new era for the show. When I first set out to make The Land of Desire, I had no idea how big it would grow. I am lucky enough to have thousands of listeners all around the world, and I've been so glad to hear from all of you that I spent most of this year trying to find more and more ways to connect and share with you all. Unfortunately, I may have found just a few too many ways to connect. As I prepare for 2018, 
I need to make a few major changes, some of which are bittersweet. One, I'm updating my Patreon page to reflect the fact that I just can't offer the rewards I thought I could going forward. I appreciate any contributions from listeners with immense gratitude, and I'm sorry to disappoint those who had contributed up to now, hoping that they could get some of those rewards, like Google Hangouts with yours truly, but I don't want to make promises I can't keep, so I'll be editing that page accordingly. Two, and this is the big one. Since the show's debut, I've always aimed to deliver a new episode every other Thursday. But this next year, I simply cannot produce new episodes this frequently. I have a full-time job, and friends and family, I think. I vaguely remember them. I'd like to spend some time with them. And the Land of Desire in its current state is basically a whole full-time job of its own. So I will continue producing new episodes on a more relaxed schedule. I'm not quite sure what that will look like, and I beg your patience while I figure it out. But in the meantime, I want to thank all of you for your support this year. Every email, every Facebook post, every Patreon contribution, every shout out, and every fan photo, every one of them was a joy for me. As always, the best part of producing The Land of Desire is the opportunity to get to know each of you. So with this gratitude and excitement for the future in mind, I wish you all a very happy new year, and I can't wait to share more wild, wacky, and wonderful stories from French history with you in 2018. Until next year, au revoir!